Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Aspirin BC podcast presented by STP. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, we are at Hendrick Motorsports conference room at the 4888 shop where we are here to talk to the manager of aerodynamics, Diane Hall. Diane, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So I want to talk to you about your career because I think for anybody who's a motorsports fan, you have a pretty fascinating around the world story, various series and various countries and teams, which is very interesting. But I want to start first, Diane, just with what you do here. Like, What is manager of aerodynamics? Or how would you define your daily role here at Hendrick? Um, well, my role's kind of changed recently because I've, I've moved um, not just from doing aerodynamics to um, being involved with the design group, which I have done, you know, in other in other companies I work for. So um, my day to day, you know, sort of, um, there's lots of meetings, <laughs> 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 which uh, I, I think everybody understands that problem. Um, but especially when you're managing a lot of people, there's obviously lots of meetings you've got to go to. Um, but you know, looking at where we were from the previous weekend's races, things that we needed to um, change going into new, um, the, the the race coming up, um, aerodynamic development, wind tunnel testing, um, also our CFD program. You know, keeping an eye on that, and finally looking into new designs with the design group. And how many people would you say you oversee? Uh, it's getting up for about thirty-five now. Really? Yeah. Is that the most in your long career that you've, you've managed, or is that have you managed more people than that? Um, I've I've managed up to sort of I would say thirty-five, forty people. Yeah, that, that's yeah. this. You know, I haven't done it for a while, but so yeah, it's, this is a new recent thing for me. Right. And does your do your duties pretty much solely revolve around being here at the the Hendrick campus, or do you, do you travel at all? Do you go to many races? Um, I go to a few races. Um, just to kind of keep my hand in a little bit. Um, but there's so much work back here and so much importance being back at base that that's where I, you know, my main focus is. It's across the board in terms of every cup car. Correct. You're, you're yeah, all, yeah, all four teams. Let's talk about a little bit about where you started, Diane. You're, you're from, if people couldn't tell already the, by the accent, you're from, is it Guildford, England? Yeah, Guildford, England, yes. Okay. Yeah. And so you, you grew up there and you had an interest in racing from an early age, I think. Was your father involved in racing a little bit? Yeah, my father wasn't involved in racing. He was a materials engineer, but so racing was more of a, you know, he was a fan, so Formula One in particular, and he, he grew up, you know, um, watching Sterling Moss and Jim Clark in Formula One. Um, and my brother is a pilot, uh, was interested in, you know, the 
that side of things. And so I really wasn't interested in, in any engineering at all. Um, I just wanted to dance and do <laughs> stuff like that, you know, as a young, as a youngster. And um, so I, I kind of got to my 16, 17-year-old age and all my sciences were, were pretty good at school. And I started following a driver in Formula One. And, and from that point on, I chose to change my career and uh, went on and did a degree in engineering. You focused on racing and you did three internships while you were in school that were p- pretty instrumental in you m- moving into the field. Yeah, so I was lucky in that the university I went to had long-term internships. So you spent six months at companies. And so I knocked on the door of Reynard Racing Cars, which at that time was a small manufacturer in the UK. Adrian was looking for free help. <laughs> So I remember I didn't get paid anything to go and work for Adrian for six months. Um, We used to get like a tax back from the government that he had. So it was like 50 pounds, 75 bucks a week I got paid at Reynard. (laughs) And I worked in their fab shop and machine shop. And then we, um, he was just about to start doing a composite Formula 3 chassis. It was the first um, carbon fiber chassis. And nobody really knew very much about it. My dad was a materials engineer. Mm -hmm. So... Um, they kind of lucked in there as well. So, um, you know, my dad supplied thermocouples and stuff. We built an oven and we laid up the first carbon Formula 3 chassis. Um, that was my first internship. And then, so I felt, you know, pretty pumped at, you know, I'd done that at Reynard. And so I went down the road to March Engineering for my second one, which was already in IndyCar. The, one of their senior people, one of their race engineers was Adrian Newey, who obviously later on became very famous as a right. you know, one of the giants designer. of F1 engineers. Yeah. But I knew him when he was a race engineer and, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, do you want to join the aero program just to design stuff? So I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm 19, 20. This is great. And so that was my first experience of wind tunnel testing. I went to my first tunnel test with Adrian Newey and I ended up designing parts for their wind tunnel model. So after that six month period, I'm like, hey, I really know what I'm doing. I'm going to go back to Adrian at Reynard and say, hey, I can design you a wind tunnel model because you don't have a program so adrian said okay here's two and a half thousand pounds go and design and build me a wind tunnel model so that's what i did in my six months and uh, my dad helped me assemble it in the garage at home or the garage at home (laughs) and um, we ran it at southampton university and that was reynard's first wind tunnel car and so you know i was pretty cocky at that point i was like yay i can do this (laughs) (laughs) and um so I decided I wanted to try and get a job in Formula One when I graduated. So I wrote to every single Formula One team and got zero responses. So for everybody out there, it happens. And then finally, I got a, a, a letter because there was no such thing as email in those days. To this, any degree. What, what year would this have been? This would have been 1987, I guess, 88, something okay. like that. And um, it was from Ferrari. And they said, um, would you like to come for an interview? So I'm like... That worked out all right. That worked out. Ferrari was setting up an English design base under John Barnard, who had just moved from um, McLaren, and he was looking for a young designer. And so I went and had the interview. He said, you know, get a good degree and you've got the job. So my first job out of university was with the Ferrari Formula One team. And as you mentioned with John Barnard, who is... Mm -hmm. You talked about Adrian Newey being one of the most famous, I think, engineers in F1 history. I mean, John Barnard was also, he, he essentially, did he invent the carbon fiber composite chassis? So, yeah, chassis? so John did the carbon fiber chassis at McLaren. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he moved to Ferrari, um, he, you know, developed the first semi-automatic gearbox. 
um, flexure suspension, torsion bar mm-hmm. suspension, the aerodynamic properties of his car were probably the best in the, at that time. So, you know, I, I, I've lucked in in many areas of my career where I've had senior people who have been instrumental in, in helping me grow as an engineer and as a person. And he was someone who obviously was brilliant, but probably was pretty demanding as well? John was very, very tough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember one time I, um, I've probably been there four or five months and I was the youngest engineer there. I had my little drawing board because we only had one CAD station at that point. It was all done on the drawing board. And he was, he was very demanding, very tough. Um, and I remember going home and talking to my parents and saying, I can't do this anymore. I just can't, you know, Mm -hmm. I've had enough. And I'd gone from this very, you know, I I can achieve everything to an environment where excellence was expected and the hours you had to put in and and there was no place for failure. And so I think my ego when I went in was really high and after four or five months I'd lost it all, all my confidence. And so, you know, I said to my parents, you know, I'm going to resign. And my, my parents were like, well, you know, it's, it's Ferrari. Do you really want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I've got to do it. So I wrote a letter and I went in and I sat in front of John, John Barnard, and I said, John, I'm thinking about resigning. And he said, well, because you're thinking about it and you haven't given me your letter, we've got something to talk about. And then he said, I, I, I gave you credit for more gumption than you're showing right now. And, you know, it, 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 I was what, 21, 22. And um, so he said, I will back off you for four months and we'll see if we can work it through and you can leave my office now. And so he didn't actually let me resign. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went away and he did leave me alone. He didn't come to my drawing board every four, you know, few hours. Mm-hmm. And after four months, he came and he put a check on my desk and he said, that's for showing some gumption. And I ended up working for John for another eight, eight nine years. But what sort of drivers were you involved with, Eric Ferrari? So Gerhard Berger, Nigel Mansell, um, Jean Lacey were the drivers. Um, and then John left Ferrari and went to work for Benetton. And so I went with him to Benetton, Formula One. We had Nelson Piquet at Benetton Formula One. And then John left Benetton. He wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So at that point, I joined him. Um, He had a a John Barnard design consultancy company. So I worked for John's design consultancy company, and we basically designed a gearbox, which which was effectively the the lead up to being able to do a carbon fiber gearbox. John wanted to do it. It was another one of the things that he thought, you know, we can move the form, you know, the the technology forward mm-hmm. so I designed that with John um, in his it was actually it was in a room in his house <laughs> that was by <Barnard laughs> design consultancy me and John in a room kind of designing this carbon fiber gearbox and um, here we think the, of F1 being so vastly technological and it's exactly just yeah. people designing stuff in their bedrooms. that's right <laughs> but the thing was John had the the technical expertise and the just the vision of he was never scared of a new design or a new way of doing something Mm -hmm. It was a challenge, and he looked upon it as as that. So in that period, Ferrari had slumped again. So they were like, hey, can you come back? Can you come back and join Ferrari? So John joined Ferrari back, and I went, and then that gearbox ended up being on the Ferrari. But in all that time, I'd always wanted a race engineer. 
there wasn't going to be an opportunity for me to do that in Formula One. It was already starting to be where in the past, you know, race engineers, race engineers had come through from the design group, but it was starting to change. You know, simulations and actually employing race engineers as race engineers was starting. So I said, okay, you know, I, I want to become a race engineer. How can I do it? I called back Adrian Reynard, um, who I'd interned, you know, at 18 with, and he had moved um, his company into into IndyCar racing. And so I said, Adrian, I, you know, I really want to race engineer. And so he said to me, okay, Diane, what, what you can do is come back and help me design a wind tunnel at Shrivenham and a wind tunnel model and I will introduce you to some teams and you can become a liaison engineer. So that's what I did with Reynard Racing Cars. If you're a fan of racing and listening to this and, and you know the IndyCar was in cart scene in, in the early to mid-90s, that would have been around this time frame, yes. right? Yeah. That that was when Reynard was one of the primary chassis builders and yeah. had a lot of success yeah. in the cart series. And, and IndyCar racing in the 90s was huge. Right. You know, um, it was, um, there was as much interest around IndyCar racing as there was Formula One and and more so than NASCAR even at that point. Um, so for me it was it was a big step and I'd always wanted to come and live in America. My father had uh, used to come um, out a lot because he was worked with the British Ministry of Defence and so I used to spend summers in Pensacola or Annapolis, places like that. And so I'd always had a little bit of a target that that's where I wanted to end up. And so you became head of R&D at Reynard and then you moved to the United States at that point? Yeah, so, so what happened was I became head of R&D at Reynard and then I became a liaison engineer for Walker Racing, which was Robbie Gordon and Christian Fittipaldi mm-hmm. at that time. And so it started with coming over one or two races and it ended up with me going across the Atlantic. I think it was 28 times that year. <laughs> it's like, eh, this is not really doing anybody any good. And Tasman Motorsports approached me to become one of their, they were going from a one-car team to a two-car team. And would I become one of their race engineer crew chiefs? And so I said, yes, absolutely. And, and Adrian Reynard was like, yeah, okay, well, you did our, you did what you said you would for us. And we're happy for you to move on and, and join one of these teams. Tasman at that time, owned by Steve Horn, who is based in Ohio. You went to work there, became the engineer for Adrian Fernandez. And I was just telling Diane this before we got started here. I actually spoke with you at the Laguna Seca race in 1997. My first job out of school was covering motorsports at a small paper in Southern California. And the first kart race at Fontana was coming a few weeks later. So I went to Laguna Seca and talked to some teams and personalities and people in the, in the industry like yourself and did a story about you being the engineer for Adrian Fernandez. And I think you just come off the previous year. He had yeah. won his first race mm-hmm. at Toronto. That's correct. And I remember, unfortunately, I, I know I had a copy of this paper somewhere, Diane. And unfortunately, <laughs> I couldn't find it. I searched frantically for it yesterday and I uh, wanted to show it to you. I do remember what you said back then. And I think it was essentially that Steve Horn, had, the, the owner of the team, had taken a little bit of risk on you as a rookie female mm-hmm. engineer. Obviously, yep. there are not a lot of women in motorsports, particularly probably more so back at that time. Yeah, I think, you know, Adrian Reynard gave me the opportunity to kind of showcase my talents in many ways. Because although I was a liaison engineer to Walker Racing, I also was able to go and talk to the other Reynard teams that had the Reynard car. So it was like having interviews every few weeks. The team would say, well, what do I need to do here? What do I need to do there? And so I was able to show what I already knew, even though I hadn't crew chiefed or necessarily race engineered. And Steve Horn in particular, who, you know, him and his wife, Christine, who have remained in in my life because they're godparents to my son, he was a very straightforward owner. 
This is how much money we have. This is the performance we need to to try and get. And what is gonna? How is that gonna happen? You know, mm-hmm. what do we spend the money on? Whether it's wind tunnel testing or new suspension or whatever. Um, and Steve was very data driven. He was an accountant from training, but he was always very supportive. And I also lucked in in that Andre Ribeiro's engineer Don Halliday, um, crew chief was a very experienced, older um, engineer. So it worked well. I was able to do a lot of work back at base and help from that perspective. And Don was very charitable in helping me and with his experience in some of the race engineering aspects that I was struggling with at a young age. Is it different when you're an engineer on a team like that? And maybe the structure is completely different now, 20 years later. But at the time, were you essentially like the crew chief? Did you make yes. the calls? Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, this is, you know, I, I this is where I feel even now. A crew chief um, in NASCAR is is very similar to where I was in IndyCar, you know, 15 or 20 years ago now. That's a long time, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I set up the car. You know, I did all the sims. Um, I did the wind tunnel testing. Uh, If I needed a new suspension, I invariably designed it, you know, Mm -hmm. went on the CAD and designed it. So it was all-encompassing. We had five or six or seven engineers tops. So in lots of ways, it parallels where the NASCAR teams have been and are moving away from, you know, now. In the absence of like real world testing, it's becoming more and more important to do this sort of stuff. Okay, let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a product from our presenting sponsor, STP, and that is the Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. For more than 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products such as this to help engines perform at their best. And this newest product, the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline. That helps keep fuel fresh during storage, especially in engines that are stored over an extended period of time. I have used products such as these for years in my personal cars. They're very easy to use. You just put the contents in the gas tank and they improve fuel efficiency and also keep your engines running smoothly. The STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer is compatible with all two- and four-stroke engines, including lawnmowers, boats, and motorcycles. And one bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. So be sure to check out the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. And now let's return to our conversation with Diane Hall. So you worked at Tasman and then you went to Chip Ganassi Racing for a little while in R&D? Yeah, so um, I worked at Tasman. I engineered Adrian Fernandez for two years and Tony Cannon for two years. So we, we were lucky enough to win Rookie of the Year with Tony in the Michigan 500. And then Tasman was taken over. It was sold and Steve left being the owner and I decided I needed to make a move. Initially, I went to a small team, Della Pena, with Richie Hearn. Richie Hearn had an accident at the very beginning of the... It was during testing it was actually the year, the last race of the last the season before and the team struggled a big time um, and after a few races I decided that this wasn't for me and so I spoke to Tom Anderson who was the manager at Tom Anderson and Mike Carl at Target Chip Ganassi and said they said well we'll have a position as an R&D engineer so so I went there and I conducted wind tunnel tests and team tests and KNC rig work and um, engineered at the the Indy 500 with Nicholas Manassian for you know, one year. So yeah. At that point, you wanted to go back to Europe. Yeah, wanted yeah. to go back to England. Um, you know, to, mainly for personal reasons with my family. 
So I actually called up John Barnard because I still was kept in contact with John and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking I want to come back to England. Where, where, where do you think is a good place for me to talk to? And he said, well, give me a week. And so I got a call back from John. And he said, here you go, give give Adrian Newey a call. And I'm like, well, okay, because <laughs> I know Adrian anyway. Um, but I didn't have his number, and so I gave Adrian a call, and Adrian said, well, we have a job for you. When do you want to start? And that really was as easy as it was. So then I had to go and see Mike Hull at Chip Ganassi and say, you know, look, um, I feel like I want to go back to Europe. I want to go back to England. And so Mike said, well, they were in a position where they – had decided to not allow uh, Nicholas Manassian and Bruno Gianquera to drive at the Indy 500 and they were going to put Jimmy Vassar and Tony Stewart in the car. And then they made a decision that they were going to run all four. So Mike said, well, if you engineer Nicholas for the 500, um, we'll negate any contract you know, any contract stuff that you have and we're happy for you to go. So I stayed on for another six weeks or whatever and engineered Nicholas and then on Memorial Day I was on a plane back to England. <laughs> so Right after the five hundred was right so, after the five hundred I was packed up and in a hotel room. For so that five hundred. Two thousand one, I think, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah somewhere okay. around there, yeah. Okay. So you returned at that point to F one and you're working for McLaren, which at mm-hmm. the time was was certainly a a very successful team. This would have been like in the, what, the Montoya, Raikkonen yeah, type Yeah, with era. Montoya, Kimi Raikkonen, and then Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fernando Alonso, Alonso was there, yeah. yeah. So four yeah. really mm-hmm. big names. Yes, <laughs> what, <laughs> absolutely. What was it like to work with those drivers in F1? Well, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I didn't work with them very much, you know. Um, <laughs> You know, Montoya would come in because he knew me from Ganassi and from seeing me at Tasman Motorsports because he had just gone, you know, back into Formula One or gone into Formula One. And, um, you know, as I was a principal engineer at McLaren, responsible for suspension. Um, And by that stage, Formula One had changed greatly from, you know, when I started working for John, you know, on a drawing board, at at most six or seven designers going back to Formula One, you know, 15 odd years later, and suddenly you're in a design office of 100. And I have six or seven designers just working on front suspension. It was quite a big change. And and I worked at the old McLaren site for, I think it was about two years. And then we moved into this beautiful new facility that they're in now. It was just a, you know, a wholesale change for me. So just the attention to detail and the ability to look at an individual part in depth was very different from what I'd been doing previously. So it doesn't surprise me that you don't have many stories with the drivers because you didn't have much interaction. I was really hoping we would get a good Kimi Räikkönen story. <laughs> That's okay because I, I know that things are different there compared to here. Here, obviously, I mean, just yesterday here at Hendrick, I'm sure you were part of the driver yeah. de- debrief mm-hmm. where all four drivers come in and yeah. you guys just talked through the previous weekend. How does that work versus... F1. I mean, does that not really happen so much in F1? When you um, I, I think it, it does, um, but it tends to happen much more within the race engineering group. And, you know, when, when I was at McLaren, the most that we would really be involved with, the drivers would be in the simulator. And I mean, I had, a, a, you know, a small amount of dealings with Lewis because Lewis wasn't in Formula One at that time. And so he ran the simulator a lot. Because he was like the test driver. Yes. The McLaren and so, mm-hmm. you know, one of my jobs was designing the sled and everything for the simulator you know, as part of the front suspension and everything. So, you know, we when we had test drivers that drove the simulator. So, you know, there was more um, interaction with them. And uh, driver fits. 
So that was the other thing. The simulator was also used for checking that the driver could drive it because their legs were so high and all that. The nose height and everything was all new, you know, really then and going further and further for aerodynamic reasons. But really, the the structure of a Formula One team is so very different and so very decompartmentalized, I guess is the phrase, um, that you would be told, this is what I want to achieve from a set design, and then you go off and do it the best you can. So, and there's just not much interaction then between driver and... No, and it was also at a time that we, we were developing the simulator, and the main interaction that I had with race engineers and drivers was when we would try something in the simulator, and I was involved in the output of the simulator so they they would try a suspension geometry and then we would design the suspension geometry it get tested and we would be told well you know what the simulator and what was tested didn't work it didn't it didn't get the same result and it was as much trying to develop the simulator as it was trying to develop a suspension and it was particularly for Montoya because Montoya and uh, Kimi couldn't drive the same suspension so they were trying to find something for Montoya to get his performance where it needed to be. Was there no real world testing at that point or just limited? Um, No there was real world testing as well but but I think the thing what they were trying to do is create it in the simulator and then make it and see whether or not they agreed um, because it was early days in trying to understand you know how to get the simulator working. So after the time at McLaren this is where pretty much your NASCAR Odyssey begins right yes. this is about eight years ago or so 2009 yeah, yeah yeah 2008 yeah. 2008 okay yeah. so you, you return to america to work at michael walter bracing and uh this is again where this is the second time in 20 years i've talked to diane hall around 2009 <laughs> when i was doing a story about all the international influence that michael walter bracing had at the time yourself included so before we get to that though your return to america was because did your was your son born here or you just wanted no my son was born in in england okay. and you know as soon as i went back to england i realized i'd pretty much made a mistake and I really missed America (laughs) and so you know in that period although I enjoyed my time at McLaren I was you know trying to work out how to get back to America and you know IndyCar was going through a pretty big struggle at the time and so you know I had had a few friends that were had moved from IndyCar into into NASCAR I made the decision that I, I wanted to move back so I started looking around Michael Waltrip actually Eric Warren who's now RCR um, contacted me and said, hey, we're, we're looking for some, some extra engineers. Would you like to come over and chat to us? So that was why I talked to you then. There was a lot of international uh, team members at Michael Walter Bracing at the time. There's yourself. There was Steve Hallam, um, Nick Hughes, Carl Goodman. Lots of people gravitated toward Michael Walter Bracing back then. And I remember you telling me for this story, it was really funny, that at the team shop, you guys had like a dry erase whiteboard that was sort of like the Rosetta Stone for understanding the other versions of English That's that right. were being spoken at Michael Walter <laughs> Bracing, in which, you know, you had bonnet, that means hood, and yeah. boot. When we mm-hmm. say that, when Diane or Steve Helm or whoever says that, that means trunk or yeah. knackered means tired. And let's read you this quote. You told the team once, we just need to hack it around. And in England, that's not a bad thing. That's just what they say when they need to get something fixed. And, you know, the response from like the NASCAR American group was, we're artisans. You don't hack something. And you were just like, okay, well, let's use the word fettle. And then people just started laughing because yeah. they knew what fettle meant. So yeah. <laughs> what was it like uh, when you think back on that, combining all those cultures? Yes, you know, I mean, I was in a lucky situation in that having lived in America before, mm-hmm. um, having done circle track racing. So, you know, some of the other foreigners, so to speak, that came out over, um, it was a big culture shock because they had to learn everything, not just living in America and 
and circle track racing, but they also had to learn NASCAR. There are, there are lots of differences. And, you know, I struggle even now trying to rationalize some of the decisions that are made just because of the way NASCAR is run, you know, the the, the, the way it's policed, the, the rules and the development of the cars. And it's different in terms of philosophy from... What you kind of were raised in? The way I see it is if you if, if, if you were to turn back to when I first started in Formula One, five years earlier than that, they had metal monocoques. And there's a lot you can do to a metal monocoque you can't do to a carbon monocoque. And I think as soon as you changed that, you changed the philosophy in how you designed and built cars because you couldn't just drill a hole in a carbon fiber chassis. You had to make sure there was a bobbin or a structure there to, to pick up those loadings. And I think that fundamentally changed the way Formula One developed from that point. I feel like this is an interesting discussion to have now, Diane, because John Barnard was instrumental in like developing, creating the, the carbon fiber chassis in F1 and that composite material and everything that was used with that. And now NASCAR seems to be on the cusp of, you know, traditionally it's always been steel stock car bodies and mm-hmm. we're seeing a movement toward composite bodies in the Xfinity series for next year and a lot of talk about it being possible in the future for Cup. And I, I've talked to over the last seven or eight years, I've talked to many people in NASCAR and especially engineers and you know, those say who work at like Penske where they have IndyCar and NASCAR under the same roof and they say this is just a natural progression. And NASCAR was destined to end up mm-hmm. eventually at this point. Is that kind of where you see it too? I think is there's a there's a very fine line between cost development and theater (laughs) yes Um, because that's what we're in entertainment Mm -hmm. you know and that's one of the things that you know when when we used to go to um, Japan for the IndyCar race I had entertainer on my visa you know and that kind of you know didn't have engineer I was an entertainer when I went there you know and and that's where engineers I feel you know, they get very much engrossed in, I want the best part. I want it to be this, the, the highest stiffness, the lightest weight, the lowest CG, the best aerodynamic numbers. But in reality, it's the entertainment on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon that is going to make this, you know, this championship, this series continue and the fans that support it. You know, NASCAR has to protect that and they have to protect it in the right way and it's not easy. So I think once you take out driver safety, because that should be non-negotiable, once once that, you know, that's understood, then it's how do you manage cost and how do you keep the fan um, connected and you know with the the teams and the development and some of that some of that's difficult because there's a fan base that doesn't want to move away from some of the less technologically demanding aspects of of a, of a car right. and there are other fans that definitely want to be part of that and i think you know trying to encourage the younger person back into the sport is probably going to be you know partially driven by uh, younger drivers and partially driven by hey this is actually quite you know if, if you if you learn about how we move things forward in NASCAR it's not as old-fashioned as you may think you know all the programs that we have in NASCAR they have in Formula One you know the development programs the finer element programs the CFD programs you just don't necessarily necessarily see it when you look at a NASCAR. This is something that came up in our last discussion too, where you said there was like almost a certain amount of nervousness about traditions in NASCAR mm-hmm. because tradition is so important that could be yeah. could be sort of lost with mm-hmm. yeah. the transformation of technology. 
Yeah, and I think you have to be very aware of that. And so I yeah. think you have to do it with all the teams um, buying in. And, and that's tough in itself, you know, because obviously you've got owners, different, you know, eras, trying to have the expenditure capped so that, you know, we're all in business, you know, in 20 years' time. And I, th- I think you've also mentioned, this might be from the first interview, your time in F1, I think you were also struck by, maybe when you were first in it, going back 20 years ago, uh, or a little bit before that, that the driver impact had sort of been minimized. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure here in NASCAR, it's maybe less so. Is that fair? Obviously, in F1, far fewer teams that can probably win on any given yes. Sunday versus, versus yeah. this side. Ver- versus this side, absolutely. You know, th- and it's a difficult question to answer because if you try and make everybody even I don't think it necessarily means that the driver is going to come out one thing that the IndyCar did in the 90s which was great was the rules were pretty open and so it actually formed a certain amount of excitement this new cars coming out or this new development and put into the hands of a good driver you know for a few races they had that advantage and and sometimes I think it's it, it, you can close down the rules too much in the hope that you're going to cut cost and you're going to let it come more into the driver's hands. But the cream of the crop always get to the top, whether it be the team or the driver. When you went to MWR, Diane, you, back then, 2008, it was still a struggling team at that point, very young team. That was its second year in Cup. And you had worked at some powerhouses in F1 and you wanted to see what it would be like working at a small organization. So mm-hmm. you were there and now you are back at <laughs> a powerhouse <laughs> back at, back organization. Back at powerhouse, yes. So, yeah, how, does, how does that feel? The, the, the one thing that was very different at, at Michael Waltrip Racing was it was a new team. So what that meant was although you had a large number of very experienced NASCAR people, you also had an influx of um, people from different um, walks of life, different team series, you know, racing series. And so there was nothing set in place in terms of the processes. So we had the luxury to say, um, how are we going to life the parts of our components? What... CAD program we're going to run, what CFD program we're going to get. And we didn't have any sponsorship that really tied any of that together. So we also didn't have any, um, we had to buy it. That was that right. was the reality. In some ways that also freed you up. From that perspective, we were able to put in newer technologies and newer ways of doing it than some older, more established teams who have been doing it this way for 20 years. So when you come to an organization with such amount of you know, in-depth knowledge is Hendrick Motorsports, a lot of those processes are ingrained in how the company has grown over the years. You know, in, in moving things forward, you have to be very conscious and careful of what is important to change and what is very important to maintain. Um, and sometimes you can get that wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I think as an organization, Hendrick Motorsports in particular, you know, is moving forward, you know, weighing up what things they need to change and what things they feel are where their success comes from. Is it so. almost as if you have to have two parallel tracks, one short-term, these are the basics, this is where we know we're good, we just need to keep fine-tuning this, and then long-term, here are things we might be looking at doing I think absolutely, yeah. yeah. And in some degree, in some ways, we're, we're actually doing that. You know, it's like, well, this is, this is our path right now, but we're going to show that this is a, you know, we're making some changes, say, to a set component. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see whether this parallel path is going to, you know, bear fruit and it's going to be more competitive. So, yeah, I think I think that's key. 
Yeah. You said in an interview I did with you eight years ago that trying to analyze a rear truck arm, which for those who aren't, even after 20 years of covering this stuff, I'm not sure, I'm totally clear on what they are, but that's <laughs> suspension part, like yeah, in the rear of the car. Rear, that rear suspension part, yes. yeah, yeah. All right. Trying to analyze a rear truck arm in NASCAR is as complicated as anything I've done on an F1 car. It's still true? It's yeah. still true, <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the, the problem is that in, in Formula One, you you have a certain amount of rules but they, you know, at least when I was in Formula One, you know, up to 10 years ago, um, you still had a certain, you know, a suspension. So, for example, a, you know, carbon fiber suspension piece. There's a lot of intricacies in how to design, um, develop and test that. And the same thing goes with a truck arm that was originated, I don't know, 100 years ago, I guess, in trying to get it to do what you want it to do. In the NASCAR environment, is it different from IndyCar and F1 for an engineer because there's more restrictive rules? Is, are the rules about the same in terms of like how much you're allowed to work in certain areas? Are they different in some ways? I think it it's more, restri- yes, it is more considerably more restrictive. But the this is, this is where the, I think, misconceptions often comes. If you have a more restrictive set of rules all it means is it takes more money to squeeze out the advantages within those rules and, and often I think that as I said it's often that's misunderstood the thought that as you as you make the rules um, more constraining it's going to be cheaper is actually often the opposite because if, if you're looking for a hundred counts of downforce versus 10 counts of downforce you know it's easy to find those those first 90. It's right. really difficult to find those last 10. And so it becomes exponential in cost. Is there some movement afoot in NASCAR? It seems as if externally to me and others that NASCAR is maybe moving in a direction of opening up things a little bit more with its inspection process next year, changing. You um, see that? I think it's actually going to close it down Oh, really? Um, with the scanner. Yeah. You know, um, they're, they're, they're going to have this scanner and they're going to hold you to a set tolerances. And, you know, you also have to consider this is the engineer coming out in me. Got to have that theater versus engineering side of things. When you're, when, when your whole vision is just, I'm trying to make this car go quicker. I'm trying to make this particular component. Your focus becomes obviously very pointed. And sometimes you, you don't consider the other aspects of, of the reasons for doing these changes that NASCAR is doing. So is it as enjoyable as any series? that you've worked in or is it just different is it more enjoyable or can you compare them or it's hard to say I I think it's also part of where I am in my life when I was very young it was all everything was new to me Formula One Ferrari you know where can you go but down right Right. (laughs) you know when you join Ferrari at 21 and and then you know I worked through to working at Tasman and where I was in my 30s and I'd I was relatively confident and, you know, going around the world, going to all these, tre- you know, places, Australia, Japan, Brazil, <laughs> um, all over America. That was very exciting. Then coming into, into NASCAR, it was a very big challenge from an engineering perspective. I think probably the biggest challenge I had was coming into NASCAR, even different from going from, you know, Formula One to IndyCar, because I think in many ways they were similar. Uh, from an engineering perspective, so coming into NASCAR has been a you know technically quite challenging, and then coming to a place like Hendrick Motorsports, which is you know just has such an enormous history, and you know you're working with you know the best crew chiefs who are as demanding as John Barnard or Adrian Newey, but in different ways. 
you know, so they all have their individual kind of challenges and good and bad, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Is it different? A lot is made about how NASCAR engineers are steering the ship more than ever, particularly since computers and simulations went big, and especially since real-world testing was banned a few years ago. But NASCAR does have that crew chief model Mm -hmm. where sometimes they can have veto power. They are are, king of the hill. Is that a little bit different in working in NASCAR versus like F1? Yeah, Yeah. it's very different. In, In Formula One, you design the car, you give the car to the to the race engineer and they go race it you know and they have the the aerodynamic race engineer they have the driver race engineer they have the suspension race engineer whatever it is um in nascar that's still that's not the way it is you develop the car as a group so um you you are more involved across the whole complex Mm -hmm. um and with that goes the ability to both look at data, uh, listen to a driver, and try and understand what he's trying to get from a feel. And I think the tires and the weight of the car, everything like that, has a differing impact on on some of that. You know, so yeah, I think being um, NASCAR is very much more a people. You have to make sure you can talk to a crew chief, a driver and the guy fabricating it, um, which in Formula One is not the case. A designer may not move out of his design chair uh, for weeks until a part comes. You know, my designers are constantly in and out talking to people, trying to get things made properly. So there's a lot more interaction and balancing of opinions sure, yeah. and influence. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And that can be good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's our, what's, what is good and bad about it? Well, I think, you know, it's you can build opinions based on experience that are not necessarily valid. And so trying to show that something that you believe to be have been successful over the years it wasn't successful because of what you thought it was it's actually something else and trying to be able to explain that in a concise way um, and have people understand it and go oh okay I need to change my way my philosophy on that you know it it takes a lot there are a lot of penalties in NASCAR that come out post-race I don't feel like not just now but like history of like open wheel big league racing like IndyCar and F1 we see that as much and you've got experience and all three is is there a reason why i think i think there are a number of reasons i think the first is that the nascar rules are that rigid so in order for you to get competitive advantage you have to go closer to the rules than you may do in other formulas i think the penalties in other formulas are pretty much draconian you know if you if you if you make a mistake you're gonna they're gonna come down on you really really hard and I think it's the history of NASCAR, you know, it's the bootlegging from when it first started. So I think if you put those in as a, as all the factors, I think that's why you have what you've got right now. And for it to change, if we want it to change, and that's the question that is often thrown out there, is NASCAR has to be very, very clear and they have to be basically making sure everybody applies to the same rules and is held to the same rules. And there should be no, well, maybe, and, and be very clear about that. And they're working that direction. It's hard. It's, you know, it's, it's very easy for a team to say, oh, you know, we got called out this week. And you know for a fact that it's tough on the NASCAR officials right. every single day. Every time they're there, all the teams are pushing. Because that's your job. That's is, your job. Is to go all the way to the edge exactly. of the rule book. Yeah. So in other series, is it almost as if everything is sort of set ahead of time? Like there's more rigorous sort of inspection or understanding that before you go to a race, the car is going to be a certain way. And like you said, if it's not, it's unacceptable. I, I, think, I think maybe a little bit, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when I was in Formula One, the, the rules were also a lot wider. And, and I remember, you know, designing something and we were like, how close are we? One of the things that they did, you know, when I was in Formula One was you would you would come up with something and they'd be like, oh, <laughs> all right, we didn't think, okay, that's pretty smart. <laughs> all right, um, that's not in the rules. Okay, how are we going to work with this? Well, hmm, next year it won't be. So you still had the opportunity to use that part for the rest of the year. And now what it meant was the other teams had to scramble to get something designed and on the car that was you know, going to bridge the gap, which is a cost. So I think often that that's the way Formula One handled it. So it was never a big deal. It was like, you know what, everybody, this is a new part that McLaren have found. You're not going to be able to run it in next year. So it's up to you whether you spend the money. You know, in NASCAR, they have a different opinion. You know, if you come up with something and it's not strictly towards the rules, you know, they may bring out a rule the next week and say, we're not going to allow this. It has not been happening as much because I think with the RTA and, and all that, they've tried to stabilize that. But their other way of doing it is penalties. I think I've heard you say before, is it a little bit different in NASCAR? Like you were sort of just explaining that process time, but where you can call them and say, hey, here's what I'm working on. And yep. you get and, and that And, you know, that's a double-edged sword as well. Yeah. Because you can speak to the officials at NASCAR and say, hey, I'm working on something like this, this, this. Can you explain to me whether you feel this is going to be legal? And uh, sometimes they'll come back and go, well, we don't know. And it's like, well, you know, that doesn't help us. A yes or a no. Or you have to go to, to the extent of making the part and giving it to them to, to give a, a yes or a no. And as an engineer, again, you think, well, there's nothing in the rule book that says this part isn't legal. I've designed it, I've built it, I've shown it to you, and you've gone, hmm, we don't like that. Mm -hmm. We're not going to allow it. So as an engineer speaking, you get really upset. And you go, well, that's not fair. As a how are we trying to reduce the cost in the sport, you can understand it. The first time I did a story on you was there was the uniqueness of being a female engineer in racing. And 20 years later, I know this is probably a tired question for somebody like yourself, but I, I feel compelled to ask it because we're on the cusp of perhaps not having the most famous woman in racing, mm -hmm. perhaps history, around in NASCAR for too much longer. Where do you think it is? Is it easier for someone who once sent their resumes to everybody in F1 and got zero responses to <laughs> break in gender-wise, or does it matter? Or I feel it is easier, but the statistics would suggest it isn't because there aren't that many engineer, female engineers in, in NASCAR. I think there are more in Formula One, and I think that's partly, you know, Formula One has a high-tech view, you know, kind of perspective, and so I think it's the, it's the youth movement in general. Formula One is still cool, and trying to get, you know, the, the younger people to want to be involved in NASCAR racing um, whether it be you know young women or young men is paramount. Having said that, I have a job right now a vacant, and I've had nearly seven hundred applications. Oh wow! So you know it, <laughs> there are still a lot of people that are interested in coming to work. You know in NASCAR. You know the female side of things. It's 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 tough because I I'm a mother of a son now, and so I see it from both sides. Um, whereas I don't think there should be any restriction to you wanting to become an engineer you know when I was at school I was told I couldn't take technical drawing because I was female my dad just said well okay we'll go to the local community college and we'll do it at night if you want it if you if you're that interested in doing it you know that sort of thing would be unheard of now or should be unheard of now mm -hmm. that was just 30 years ago 30 years yeah, ago right. yeah exactly 
Um, and I was lucky that I had parents that were um, supportive and never saw you know any problem, gender problem in wanting to become an engineer. But at the same time, I feel like it shouldn't be overemphasized the other side. If my son wants to, whatever he wants to do, he needs to be encouraged at exactly the same level as any girl of his same age. And that's where I feel we need to be careful. Um, you need to support kids into whatever they want to do, but it shouldn't really matter whether they're you know, gender specific. What does your son tell you about, you mentioned getting young people involved in racing. Like, What do you think a key to, to doing that? I, I think, you know, as I said, I think the, the young driver movement, we should be, Hendrick Motorsport should be awesome with this next year. Yeah, we, should, we should have the under, got the market corner. we have the market <laughs> cornered, exactly. Um, I, I think that's a big, big element, but, you know, just, just technology in general and and how we market the races, you know, you know, you know, the podcasts and all this stuff. My son never watches the TV. I mean, I might as well not have a TV. I mean, it's all YouTube and all this stuff, you know. So races are long. It seems like teenagers is very kind of maybe not totally correct, but it seems like their attention span seems to be it seems to be shorter sure. these days. Yeah. All of that, really, I imagine. Yeah. Just curious. The last time I was looking back at my notes, did you and your son become citizens? Oh, yes. Okay, all right. Yeah. No, yeah, we yeah. were very proud to be American citizens. Okay. This is our home. So, yeah. yeah. And he has a very cool southern accent. <laughs> Despite being born in England. Congratulations on that. I remember you telling me you would just throw out there in engineering meetings at Michael Walter Bracing. Who was the fourth president? Because you were going for your test back then. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. I, I can still do it occasionally. I'll say, okay, let's do the citizenship test now, boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Diane, for your time. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate you doing this. Thank you. We appreciate Diane Hall for joining us. As I noted, that's the third time in just over 20 years that I've sat down with her. In each case, she was working for a different team, but she was very accommodating, candid, and insightful every time. She has a great story to tell, and I thank her for the willingness to share it. Thanks as well to Jesse Essex and Tiff Daniels at Hendrick Motorsports for their help in coordinating the conversation. NASCAR is at Texas Motor Speedway this weekend. Here's the NASCAR and NBC coverage rundown. On Friday, cup practice at 1 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN. Saturday, cup practices at 3 and 5 p.m. Eastern on CNBC, Xfinity qualifying at 6 p.m. on CNBC, and Xfinity countdown to green at 8 p.m. on NBCSN with the green flag at 8.46 p.m. on NBCSN. On Sunday, it's countdown to green at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on NBCSN, followed by the green flag at 2.16 p.m. Eastern time from Texas on NBCSN. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We also are available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, virtually anywhere you can find a podcast, you'll find this one. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. 
Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.